We, we've spent our last few months working our way through Hebrews 11 in a series entitled The Heroes of Faith. Uh, and we pointed out in this series that Hebrews 11 is kind of the who's who's list of great men and women of faith. In this series, we talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. And, and, and this morning, we're going to conclude this series with a number of additional people that the author of Hebrews quickly includes at the end of the chapter. In verse uh, 32, after talking about Rahab's faith, it seems the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that he didn't have time to share all the inspiring biblical stories of faith that he could, and he probably feels that he should, and so he lumps a bunch of them together, and he says this in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to mention Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Actually, uh, As you look at this list, you begin to realize that the Old Testament is really a record of people who had faith in God. You know what all these people have in common? They had faith. (laughs) They exercised faith. These people got a word from the Lord. They believed it. They acted upon it. And God used them to accomplish great things. They're examples of a life of faith. Well, first then, as we look at the remainder of this passage, we're going to see people who exercise two different kinds of faith. First, I called conquering faith. I could call it victorious faith. I could call it miraculous faith. This is people who, through faith, saw answers to prayer. They saw God perform miracles. He lists a whole bunch of them here, like we said, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. William Barclay summarizes the faith of these people this way. He says this. He says, the story of Gideon is told in Judges 6 and 7. With only 300 men, Gideon won a victory over the Amorites in the day when they terrorized Israel. A victory that went ringing down through the centuries. The story of Barak is in Judges 4 and 5. Under the inspiration of the prophetess Deborah, Barak assembled 10,000 young men and faced fearful odds, the fearful odds of the Canaanites with their 900 chariots of iron and won an incredible victory. He said it was almost like a name, uh, a band of unnamed infantry went up against a, a division of tanks, <laughs> but they won. The story of Samson, he says, is recorded in Judges 13 through 16. He says Samson was always fighting alone. In the isolation of his splendid strength, again and again, he faced the most amazing odds and emerged triumphant. He was the scourge of the Philistines. The story of Jephthah is in Judges 11 and 12. Jephthah was the illegitimate son, an illegitimate son. He was driven into a life of exile where he became an outlaw, a bandit. But when the Amorites were putting fear into Israel, the forgotten outlaw was called back and won a tremendous victory, although his vow cost him his daughter. Then there was David, who was a shepherd boy, who was the youngest in his family, and to everyone's astonishment, he was anointed king in preference to all of his brothers. We know so many feats of faith in David's life. That's just one of them. And then there was Samuel, born to his mother late in life, Again and again, moving alone as the only strong, faithful man of God amongst easily frightened, discontented 
rebellious people. And there was the prophets, man after man, of them bearing faithful, isolated witness to God. And Barclay sums up this list by saying this. He says, the whole list of men who faced, was a list of men who faced incredible odds. It is of men who never believed that God was on the side of big battalions and were willing to take tremendous, even terrifying risk for him. It is of men who cheerfully and courageously and confidently accepted God-given tasks which on human terms were impossible. They were all men who never were afraid to stand alone and face immense odds for the sake of their loyalty to God. The honor roll of history is of men who chose to be God's minority rather than the earth's majority. The author of Hebrews, after mentioning people like this, then he goes and starts to mention things that were accomplished by faith in the Old Testament. He goes on in verses 33 through 35 and says, People of faith who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted out foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And all these things that are mentioned here bring to mind the miracles God did in response to these people's faith. And as you look at this list, you think of Daniel in the lion's den, shutting the mouth of lions. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel's time, suffering the uh, fiery furnace without being burned, quenched the fury of the flames. You think of the widow who through Elijah received her dead son back, raised to life again. And on and on it goes with these incredible acts of faith that accomplished impossible things. But in the midst of of this list of accomplishments, there's a little phrase that you read over without even noticing it. It says, whose weakness was turned to strength. Now, now don't miss that phrase. (laughs) Don't miss what it's saying. Sometimes you get the feeling that people of faith mentioned here were a special category of people, that they were almost superhumans. But the author of Hebrews reminds us in the midst of listing all these incredible accomplishments that they nevertheless were people whose weakness was turned to strength. Moody once said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but we can never be too small. Hudson Taylor once said this, all God's giants have been weak men. In another place he said, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. You see, what set them apart was not who they were so much as what they believed. It was their faith. And all these people in Hebrews 11 had in common this thing. They all believed what God told them. And they responded, and it wasn't because of their great abilities. Warren Wiersbe reminds us, Gideon was a trembling farmer hiding in a wine press when God called him, afraid. (laughs) Yet his faith in God made him a conqueror. Barak begged Deborah, the prophetess, to go with him into battle. He was afraid to do it alone. And out of his fear and weakness, God gave him strength. 
Jephthah was reject, the rejected son of a prostitute, yet God used him to win a mighty victory. And God doesn't just substitute strength for their weakness. He says it's out of their weakness he made them strong. And Wearsby goes on and says this. He says, God made these believers mighty in war, not mighty before the war. In other words, they had enough faith to get in the middle of the battle, and in the midst of the battle, they saw God intervene. He gave them power. They weren't made mighty before they took the step of faith. It was they took this feeble step of faith. And God gave them power. He gave them the power of his spirit. We're told that the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. We're told the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. The spirit of the Lord came on Samson several times. It was what God did. If what we're saying here is true, then we can all qualify to be used by God because of our faith. Moses struggled to speak. God made him a spokesman. Peter was impetuous and irresponsible, so God made him his rock. <laughs> John was one of the sons of thunder, a name given because he had a quick temper, so God made him the apostle of love. And even the great apostle Paul confessed, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, it's interesting, when I was considering going into the ministry, I, I thought at first, no, this is one thing I'll never do, I'll never go into the ministry. I was a PK, and PK, not very many PKs go into the ministry. <laughs> And I not only did I not want to tackle the responsibility of ministry, but I didn't think I had the gifts for it. And, and one of the verses God gave me was this verse in Hebrews eleven thirty four, where it says their weakness was turned to strength. And I've shared, shared with you how hesitant I was and, you know, how I struggled with it. But God was never as concerned with what I had to offer or what my gifts and abilities were with what he could do. And this verse lets us know that these amazing feats were not the results of these people's incredible gifts. They were because their weakness was turned to strength. You know, when I was considering going to the ministry, God gave me about three or four verses. This was one of them. The others were from Paul and one from Moses. And it took away any excuses I had about being qualified <laughs> You know, I've always said that God's callings are his enablings. I, I like the way Stephen Furtick words it. He says, maybe God wants to do something beyond your abilities. He's far less intimidated by your failures and limits than you are. <laughs> you know, we're always evaluating ourselves in terms of, well, we failed at that. We would never do that again. Or we have these limits. We can't do this. God's not intimidated by our failures and limits. He says, we need to give less weight to our opinion of our weaknesses and our problems. He says, our qualifications come from God. He is the one who enables us to be ministers of the new covenant. When yielded to God, our weaknesses become, can become the very channel through which God wants to manifest his glory. And he can even make our weaknesses strengths. The introspective person can become another centered person. You know, a person plagued with immoral thoughts can be changed to the place that they become a person known for their purity of heart and they can know God. <laughs> a fretful person can become a trusting, confident person. A selfish, materialistic person can become a very generous person. An angry person can become a gent gentle person as they yield these areas of weakness to God and let him work in these areas of their life, they can be 
see miracles take place that, that are, are staggering to them as they understand God is using me not through the areas of my strengths, but through my weaknesses. When God finds a person who's willing to give him what he or she is, even if it's not much, God will work through that person. Paul says that God purposely chooses weak vessels so that he's the one that gets the glory, not us. But uh, having spoken in this chapter about what God can do in response to our faith, we then come to understand that it's not just God working miracles through our faith, but sometimes God gives us the faith to suffer well. (laughs) Verse 35, there's a really significant turning point in the chapter. Up until now, we've seen one incredible feat after another. People who have conquered kingdoms and achieved amazing answers to prayer. But starting in verse 5, the author throws in a word that I used to title my sermon this morning, and that is the word others. He just listed all these things that have happened in response to people's faith, and then he says others, and uh uh-oh, where are we going to go from here? Others is referring to people who did not see miracles in response to their faith. There, there was a song, Christian song written a long time ago. It talked about, uh, the writer was talking about how when he went to the Red Sea, the Red Sea didn't part for him. <laughs> and, and that's who we're describing here. They are people who suffered. Some of them suffered greatly. And they didn't see spectacular acts of deliverance for them. They didn't see God's acts in response to their longings. Others, it says, they were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Think about what that means. Some faced jeers and floggings. Jeremiah. While others were chained and put in prison, Paul, over and over again. They were stoned, Stephen. They were sawn in two, Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Does that sound like people who should be in God's hall of fame of faith? (laughs) You know, to understand the difference in what I'm talking about before and after the word others, you know, if you look at verse 35 and... uh, Others in 35, you know, look at verse 34 and 37. Verse 34, the second statement says they escaped the edge of the sword. That's before others. Then after others, it says in verse 37, they were put to death with the sword. So one time they were delivered, and the next time they were not. How many of you know that God doesn't always deliver as a response to people's faith. Sometimes he does something very different. He sustains people 
through terrible things. You know, well, why the difference? Does, does God just abandon these people? Do they not have the same quality of faith as the others? Or does God just have favorites? <laughs> well, we know that none of those things are true because these people are commended for their faith in the same way the others are commended for their faith. He's not saying, well, they had less faith, so they didn't see the same kind of answers. They're commended for their faith. He, verse 39, he says, these were all commended for their faith, yet None of them received what had been promised. They were commended for their faith without seeing God intervene in the way all these other people saw God intervene. They needed faith to hang in there in their suffering. Just like the ones needed faith to see miracles. In fact... I think they might have needed more faith to suffer and not see answers than to have miracles. You know, it's been pointed out that there's two kinds of faith. Faith that produces miracles, first. And secondly, faith that remains faithful when miracles don't come. In his book, uh, Disappointment of God, Philip Yancey has a chapter entitled, you know, Is God Silent?, And in this chapter, he talks about these two kinds of faith. He says one's a childlike kind of faith. The other's a deeper, more mysterious kind of faith. And life of God, Yancey suggests, always includes both kinds of faith. He says when we believe with childlike faith, we often receive answers and miracles take place. There are times... These are times of unusual closeness to God as he answers prayer in obvious ways. God seems intimate and caring. But when we believe without miracles, that's something different altogether. C.S. Lewis, in writing about prayer, says this. He says, striking answers to prayer usually come at the beginning of our walk with God. As the Christian life proceeds, these conspicuous answers to prayer sometimes become rarer. Then there is this deeper, inexplicable kind of faith, this hang-on-at-any-cost kind of faith when God stays silent, when nothing works according to formulas, and Bible promises seem false. This faith is trusting even in these times, believing God has not abandoned us even when it appears he has. This, this searching and struggling for answers from God promotes growth within us. It, it brings us to maturity. Faith is always, I believe, toughened by testing. But the kind of faith we're, we're talking about here is a very, very deep kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that believes that God himself is better than what life can give you. And better than what death can take from you. This faith says whether God handles me tenderly or lets me suffer, I'm still going to love him. He's still going to be my great reward. And and notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 38 about these suffering believers who didn't see answers. He says this. He He didn't say this about the others, but he says this about these. He says, the world was not worthy of them. I love that phrase. 
The world was not worthy of them. The world treated them like they weren't worthy to be in the world. But in reality, God says the world wasn't worthy of these believers. John John Piper made a comment about that statement, one that I've never really thought about quite the same way he described it, but he, it made me think a lot about it when he said it. He said this, he says, What does it mean that the world was not worthy of these obscure, destitute, unsightly, seemingly cursed people? <laughs> what does it mean the world wasn't worthy of them? And he says this, It means that they were a gift to the world and the world doesn't deserve it. That... Through their suffering, they were a gift to the world. He goes on and says, many things in life are utterly opposite of the way they seem. And here's one of them. He says, when these precious children of God are permitted to suffer and be rejected and mistreated and go destitute, afflicted and ill-treated, God is giving a gift to the world. (laughs) He's gracing the world. He's shedding his love abroad in the world. How's he doing that? Here's his answer that just really was very profound. He says this, because in those who suffer and die in unshakable assurance of their hope in God, the world is given a message and a picture. The picture is this, the Lord is better than life. (laughs) Turn and believe in him. The Lord is better Who would have thought it that the suffering are a gift to the world? When you suffer and stand firm in your faith and continue to believe in God, you are God's spokesman to the world saying, what I have in God is worth more than anything you have. These suffering saints wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground Where's your health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine there? I don't see it. But they're in God's hall of fame of faith. Where, where's the person saying that if you have faith, you can have this or that, you can have anything you want? <laughs> How many people want to wander in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground and <laughs> live in holes in the ground? Is, is, is that what you want? And yet, these are in God's hall of fame of faith. They're dispossessed of their homes. They're separated from their families. They're pursued like animals. They're expelled from society. They endure heat and cold and distress and hardship, but they refuse to deny God no matter what. Is that a statement or what? Perpetua was a a young Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the third century lived in Carthage. At this time, the emperor Septimius Severus determined to cripple Christianity because he believed it undermined Roman patriotism. And so he focused attention on some new converts to Christianity who were taking classes to prepare for baptism. He went and arrested them, and one of the ones he arrested was Perpetua. Another one was her husband. She was 22 years old at the time. She had just recently been married. Her husband, it sounds like, converted with her. She loved her husband And she had just had a baby. Her father, discovering that she had been arrested and was going to be put to death if she didn't renounce her faith, went to visit her and begged her to deny Christ. Her response to her father was, Father, do you see this vase over here, this this pot? He said, yes. 
She said, could it be called by any other name than what it is? He said, no. He says, well, so I can't be called by anything other than what I am. I am now a Christian. And at this, she said, her father was so angry when he heard the word Christian that he moved toward her as though he was going to pluck out her eyes, and then he stormed off. Sometime later, the father came back to her again and begged her to reconsider what she was doing. This time, he appealed to her on the basis of her family. And he said, daughter, have pity on my gray hair. Have pity on me, your father, if, you, if I deserve to be called your father. I have favored you above all. I have raised you to reach the prime of your life. Don't abandon me and let me be the reproach of men because of your faith. And think of your brothers and your mother. And what about your baby? Your baby's not even going to be able to live if you're gone. Give up your pride, he says. You're going to destroy all of us. And she said her father threw himself on the ground in front of her and in tears begged her to renounce her faith. Her husband, who, if I have this right, who had become a Christian about the same time she did, I think I have this right, did, out of fear, renounce his faith. But brokenhearted though she was, she refused to forsake her newfound Savior. For her last meal, instead of the feast usually granted to condemned prisoners, Perpetua requested communion with other believers who were imprisoned with her, so they were served communion. That night, her baby was brought to her one more time. She tried to nurse him, but wasn't successful. The stress had probably dried up her milk. And so she just cuddled her son and committed his future to her father in heaven. She prayed for her, fa- her husband, who had, in fear, renounced his faith. And she asked God to lessen her father's grief. The next day, when she was waiting to be executed, they had her up on a platform and her, husband, her father made a dash toward the platform trying to rescue her, trying to grab her and take her away, and he was captured and taken and beaten. Her heart was breaking over the pain she was causing those she loved, but she would not renounce Christ. She was then taken to the arena where she was killed by the wild animals and finished off by the soldier's swords to the crowd's entertainment. Now, why was this woman of faith not miraculously delivered like the others? We don't know the answer to that. Only God knows, but there's a lot of people who died with her. I love that moment in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in the book, The Horse and His Boy, when Aslan first revealed himself to the boy Shasta. Shasta at this point had realized that much that he had experienced in his journey had been the work of Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, who had been pursuing him all along. And when he understands that all that happened to them was Aslan's doing, he was really disturbed by that because these were not all pleasant things. And then he says, so then you were the one who wounded Erebus. (laughs) The lion had had taken his claws and ripped open this other horse. And Aslan said, it was I. And Shasta said, but what for? And Aslan's answer was, child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but their own. You know, why 
God allows one to suffer and delivers another will always remain a mystery to me. All I know is that God knows what he's doing. There was a critic who once interrupted a young preacher in his sermons yelling out, you say God helps those who put their faith in him. What do you do for Stephen? And the young preacher, without missing a beat, responded, he gave him love for his murderers. You want to see an impressive miracle? That's a miracle. Stephen's faith didn't keep him from getting stoned. In fact, his faith caused him to get stoned. His faith cost him his life. But his faith did give him a shining face when he was dying. And he was a powerful testimony to the end. And don't forget that one of his murderers was very impressed by his faith, and that was a man named Paul. And you know the rest of Paul's story. (laughs) One author pointed out, the blood and tears of the martyrs was not wasted. They moistened the ground into which the new seed would fall and produced a harvest for Christ's kingdom. Christianity continued to grow, and many people were drawn to faith that produced So much devotion. (laughs) The same kind of faith that enabled some to accomplish tremendous things for the kingdom of God enabled others who were outwardly unrewarded to endure to the end. And maybe it was even a greater testimony. The question I have for you as I wrap this up is, are you willing to be God's man or woman no matter what? That's a part of what it means to be part of this who's who list of faith. Are you willing to be God's tool to be used in any way he chooses? Are you willing to put Christ's kingdom before any worldly ambition? This is such a rich passage of scripture. I I, I love preaching on it because it reminds me of how valuable Christ really is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this series on the great men and women of faith, we, we pray that we too would be inspired to have greater faith, to trust you more, to believe in your incredible value no matter what it cost us. Father, we thank you for these inspirational stories in this chapter, and we pray as we continue on in our next series that you would continue to speak to our hearts and minister to us. Through God's word, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.